I want to thank you for letting me come. I've been putting Jeff off. Every time I'm down, he says, oh, you could have preached for me. I said, no, I'm on vacation. So it's, uh, I felt guilty. So that's why I'm here. I'm kidding. Um, really want to tell you folks, uh, I'm the pastor at Westminster Presbyterian in Greenville, Texas. And I always thought it was kind of quirky when people said, we bring you greetings from, from there. Yeah, but, but that really is true. Um, I know that uh, the, the, the church that I pastor is a smaller congregation, a warm and loving folks, and they would want me to make sure that you knew that they loved you. And then, in fact, they'll be praying for us this morning, as we'll do uh, for them. So we really do bring you greetings uh, from that church, not just to, because we're the same denomination, but because we're worshipers of the triune God. Would you stand with me? Uh, I'm going to read a bit differently, so you'll have to hear the Word of God, not read along. We're only going to read the first five verses of Ruth, because I like for it to be a surprise as we walk through together. Looking at Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilion. They were uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, Orpa, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to, the, to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Our God and our King, we do come before you and we thank you for this morning that you have drawn us into yourself, that you have called us to yourself to worship you. We praise you that you speak now to us. And we as your children, cleansed and seated at your feet, ready to hear. We pray that you would pour out your word, pour out your gospel to us, feed us. We pray this not just for this body, but others who gather today. For my own church, Westminster, Father, I pray for them. I pray for Patrick Lafferty as he stands to give your word this morning. That your gospel would run there. That you would encourage and strengthen and feed your people. We pray for other churches here, Father. Columbus Avenue, UBC, other, so many churches in this city alone where your word is being preached. Would you not let your people hunger? Would you not let them starve? But would you send the work of your son out in the proclamation of the word and build them up? Father, we do ask that you would protect us this morning from the evil one who would love to rob us of this word. Guard us from him and produce in us fruit. 
Father, lay me low as I bring your word. That it would come through with clarity. That you would meet your people at the right time with all that they need. We lift up all these things to you in Christ. Amen. As we come to Ruth 1, as we open the book up in those first five verses, we have a backstory, right? It's going to tell you everything that you need to know as you inch up to this story as it opens up and all that you're going to hear in it. And it's not a pretty story. It's a story that's shot through with darkness and death. Think about the opening of this story. In the days when the judges ruled, okay, well, let's just go home and go to bed because that's a really bad time if you know your Bible. Right? Familiar with judges? The vicious cycle that you see over and over again. The people rebel against God. He sends them into these little mini exiles under oppression by these enemies, by these foreign countries. And the people, they are crushed. They come to their senses. They cry out to God. God answers them with a judge. He frees them. He redeems them. And they stand back up. And then they do it all again, right? Over and over and over and over. But then it zooms in on a particular family, the family of Elimelech, right? He's from Judah, but specifically it says he's from Bethlehem. And that's important because Bethlehem Bethlehem means the house of bread. Only the problem is the house isn't full anymore. There's a famine in the land. And these people, their names, Elimelech, you know what Elimelech means? Many of you probably know what Naomi means, right? Naomi means pleasant. Elimelech means God is our king, right? It's good stuff. That's, yeah, all right. And then their kids' names mean frailty and sickly. Which, you know, if you know anything about naming children, right, in the Old Testament, that means that things weren't good. It had become a place of darkness and death. In response to the famine, Elimelech, he moves to Moab, a foreign country. Now, whether this was an example of God shoving somebody out, shoving his rebellious people out, sending them away, or whether this is a picture of unbelief on the part of Elimelech, either way, it turns out horribly for them. Because quickly, I mean, the story gets right to the point, doesn't it? Quickly, Elimelech is dead. He's done. He drops off the map. Or snuffed out of existence. That's the real danger we see unfold in this book. He leaves Naomi with her two sons. And then what do her boys do? They marry foreign women. Moabites. That's not good. And then they're married for ten years. Ten years, but they don't have any kids. Barrenness. And then what happens to the two sons? They die. They're snuffed out of existence. It's become a place of darkness and death. So Naomi, she's left with her two foreign daughters-in-law, right? She's a widow in a foreign land. This means that she loses economic and social protection and security. She's open to the exposure of poverty. She's opened up to the dangers of fraud and being taken advantage of. 
It's a place of darkness and death. And so the real question that comes out here is who's going to protect her? Who's going to care for her now? Well, then verse 6 comes, right? Light breaks into darkness. Life overcomes death. God's grace is broken through. The house of bread is full again. God has visited his people and he has blessed them. He has not forgotten them. And out there in the place of darkness and death, out there in the fields of Moab, Naomi hears about it. And so she sets out to return. She seems to have hope again. Well, that's the backstory. That's what's gotten us up to verse 7 through 22 that we'll look through today. And what we're going to see is Naomi's journey back to the house of bread. We're going to see her response to the grace that God has given her. And as she walks that road, we're going to see something that is common to every single one of you sitting in this room. We're going to see weakness and we're going to see frailty on her part. Yet even in the midst of that, hope is provided. Because as she walks this road back in the midst of her weakness, we get to see God's redemptive purposes being laid out for her all the way through. The grace that he provides even for an imperfect saint. So look with me at chapter 1, verse 7. And let's see this journey that Naomi takes. Beginning in verse 7, it says, So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to your mother's house. Now Naomi's heard of God's grace. He's heard of God's goodness. That God has returned to His people. She's moving back and the significance of those two words in the same proximity, return. Naomi is returning. Real covenantal significance, right? She's not just going back to a place. She's returning to God. But at the same time that she returns to God, she tells her daughters-in-law to return to where they've come from. Now that might not strike you as odd right off the bat. It will. But that should at least give us some pause for a second. Dissonance ought to set in right about now as you hear this story. Because you've got to ask the question, why does she do that? Here's the good news, there's grace, but she tells them to go back. Why does she do that? Well, she's going to give three arguments to these women. She's going to give three arguments. And as we move through each of them, we're going to get to see deeper and deeper into the heart of Naomi. What's driving her to do this thing? Look at verse, uh, the rest of verse 8. Listen to what she says to her daughters-in-law. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. That is her family. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Now, this first argument that Naomi gives, it's an argument, it seems, of compassion and faith. Compassion because she's a widow right now. She knows what she's headed back to. She knows the difficulty that's ahead of her. Right? So she is compassionate. She wants her daughters-in-law not to endure that, necessarily. And of faith because... 
She recognizes what her daughters-in-law have shown her. Chesed, right? That's a big theme in the book of Ruth. They have shown to her loving kindness. And the way that Naomi appears to read this Naomi, uh, Naomi reads their kindness is seen in what she says to them. She, she seems to believe that because of what they've done to her, God is going to bless them. You hear some echoes there of the Abrahamic promise. Remember, um, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Naomi seems to get that. She seems to believe it. She wants good for them. Rest, right? She wants them to have a husband. She wants them to have a life. Who can argue with that, right? Seems like a good deal. But then how do her her daughters-in-law respond? They say, no. No. We want to follow you. We want to go back with you. They refuse. But Naomi refuses to accept this. You know, this outrageous demonstration of love that they're showing her. Naomi says, no. I don't want it. And here's where we begin to see her arguments take a downward turn. Her arguments go dark. She moves from this argument of hope that she's just laid out for them. And now we begin to see her unpack an argument of hopelessness. Listen to what she says in verse 11. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back. Same word for return. My daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying them? Two times, she says, for them to return, kind of emphasizing how silly she thinks what they're suggesting is. And she offers here a very practical argument. This is the second argument, a really practical one. It seems like it's the statement of the facts. Stuff you can't argue with, right? It kind of runs like this. The logic is real simple. I have no husband, therefore I have no children. And if I had children, guess what? It's going to be a long time before they grow up and you can marry them, right? And you don't want to wait that long. And then if you do decide that you want to wait around for them, you guys are going to be too old to have children yourselves. So see, it's really silly, right? It's a no-brainer. Come on, rethink what you guys are saying. You really, really, really don't want to go back with me. Again, but wait a minute. The dissonance ought to be increasing at this point, right? Naomi just touted God's faithfulness, didn't she? She just talked about how good God was going to be in the land where where they are going. That was the whole basis for her argument that she's just given. But here's the question. If God can do that for them there in a foreign land, why can He not do that for them where she's going in Bethlehem? There's a disconnect in her argument. And we've got to figure out, what is Naomi doing? She appears at first to have all this confidence. But now in this second argument... That seems to be dwindling. It's kind of coming apart at the seams. Well, now we come to our final argument, beginning in the rest of verse 13. And here, 
here's where we begin to see what's really going on down there underneath in her heart. We get to see Naomi's grid, the lens through which she's really looking at the world. Look at the rest of verse 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That's difficult how to know, how to understand what she said here. Either she's saying my life is more bitter than yours, or she's saying my bitterness is too much for for you to bear. Either way, as Daniel Block says, one of the commentators, this reveals her understanding of God's involvement in her life. Naomi believes that God is involved, no doubt. Naomi believes that God is present. But on her read of things, God directs His power toward her in displeasure and wrath. He plagues her life with affliction and with discord. So in effect, what Naomi is saying, do you want to stay connected to somebody with whom God deals with like this? Do you really want to do that, ladies? No one in their right mind would want to stick around at least the way that Naomi sees it. Because through her lens, what she sees is a God that is out to get her. A God who has his thumb on her. That's what's really going on in here. And if we continue here to look at verse 14, we get one more piece of this. What's even underneath that? Listen to what she says in verse 14 and 15. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpha said, or excuse me, Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Did you hear what Naomi just said? Did you hear her give herself away, her betray, her betray what's really going on at the core of her response to all these things? She's just said, she's just affirmed one daughter-in-law leaving to go back to her gods, to go back to her people. Why is that a problem? Because Naomi's an Israelite. She knows that her God is the only God. She knows that Deuteronomy 4 said, all the nations, they're going to look at you guys and they're going to say, man, look, at they've got laws. Who has righteous laws like this? And who has a God as near to these people when they call on him? That's what's supposed to happen. Did she miss that day at Sabbath school at Youth for Yahweh when they learned about evangelism? You didn't know they had that, did you? Yes. And it was called Youth for Yahweh. That gives away what Naomi is really thinking, what she's really believing. We're gaining significant information about her. While this seeming compassion and faith stand in the background, what comes to the foreground, here it is, listen to this, real simple. We see a woman who has weak faith, a faith that is failing. She's returning to the place where God 
has given bread to his people once again where God has demonstrated his faithfulness. And what she says here, getting right down to brass tacks at bottom, is I don't know if God is really faithful. I don't know that he is. Do you see that connection? Do you see how her affliction, what she is going through, is beginning to wear on her? We're seeing her begin to crack under the strain of all the stuff that she's had to endure? Well, let me stop us right here and say something that many of you probably would agree with. Is that none of you can sit there with arms folded and wagging head and thinking, yeah, look at Naomi. Man, it's pathetic. You can't say that. And you won't say that. Because you all sit here going through similar things. I work part-time at a bank. And I've seen those elderly folks come in, cashing in retirements that have dwindled down to nothing. Some of you are scared to death because of what's going on with your money. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what's going to happen. Some of you are scared to death right now for your job. There's been a real loss of certainty about the future for you too, right? You don't know what it holds. Some of you have other problems. You have children that are rejecting you and the God that you serve, that you've raised them to follow. You got parents who don't know how to be parents to you. All sorts of things, difficulties that we're enduring here. It reminds me of that one chilling line from No Country for Old Men. The best dialogue, for me anyway, that was in that movie was what the old man in the wheelchair said. You can't stop what's coming. And it's hubris for you to think you can That's what you're realizing. That's what you're feeling. So you identify with Naomi at this point. And more than likely, every single one of you, every single one of us, standing in this same position, have all said similar sounding things. God is out to get me. God has his thumb on me. And I can't do anything about it. So you know where Naomi's coming from. You know what she's going through. But did you notice that big transition there? That wonderful statement. It's brief. Real easy to miss. In verse 14, it shows us that God is right in the middle of this thing. In the middle of Naomi trying to speak reasonably with her daughters-in-law between the weeping and the, and the leaving of Orpah. That little phrase, we see God's grace. Verse 14, it says, But Ruth clung to her. That clinging is another one of those covenantal words speaking about the relationship that the people of God are have with their God, holding fast to Him, sticking to Him, clinging to Him, loyalty, faithfulness, obedience, commitment. All of those things are wrapped up in that word cling. 
And Ruth is showing it. She's showing it. And that physical expression of chesed, of commitment, gives way to words. Words that you've probably all heard at wedding ceremonies, probably could could quote them, beginning in verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything, uh, uh, excuse me, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth shows to her, both in her action and in her words, a, a vicious covenant faithfulness. You need to understand what Ruth is saying here. She is committing herself to a foreign status and everything that that means. Right? That's loss. But she's committed to it. She's transferring her membership from her people and her gods to Naomi's. She is embracing the authority of Yahweh. She says, look, if I don't do what I've just said, may He just tear me apart. May He take me out. His authority, His power. Her words and her actions show us a woman in Ruth that is a woman of faith. Quite the opposite of Naomi. Ruth, the woman of faith. Naomi, the woman of weak faith. But these two have not been brought together here just for Ruth to stand in opposition to Naomi. Ruth being brought out here as a woman of faith, I think, comes through for a couple of reasons. First of all, really close up, what this demonstrates to us is what the people of God are to be to one another. Holding fast to one another, clinging to one another, showing compassion, showing mercy. You know, this is akin to what Paul calls or says in Romans when he says we're members of one another. That means that this is the way that we're supposed to be. So what Ruth does here as a woman of faith goes a long way to showing us how the church is to be shaped and formed in our way of responding to one another in difficulty. That's for sure. But if we step back and we take a broader look at what Ruth shows us, it's this. Her faithfulness to Naomi says loud and clear that God is faithful to Naomi. Ruth's words and her actions say loud and clear to Naomi, Yahweh has not forgotten you. Yahweh has not departed from you. Yahweh is giving more grace through this foreign Moabite woman, giving it to Naomi, who is struggling. Now what's Naomi's response? And this is a long passage, so listen to this. Beginning in verse 18. Now when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Marah. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? 
when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi's response to this demonstration of God's grace is oblivion. She doesn't see it. She can't see what God is doing. His demonstration of kindness and goodness to her. You see that in this text because you notice when they roll up into town, they, they say, well, is this Naomi? And Naomi doesn't say, yes, it's, I'm Naomi and this is my daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth doesn't get a mention. Other than this kind of formal reminder, you know, who else is with her? Ruth, the Moabite, you know, foreigner that's married her sons. Ruth doesn't get a mention. And what what does Naomi say to these ladies? She rehearses the interpretation of life life that she's already given. Right There, she said that her life was bitter, that the Lord had gone out against her. Here, she says, The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me by bringing calamity on me, that He has testified against her, bringing her back empty. So Naomi has managed to miss God's grace at nearly every turn. She's missed it with him bringing bread to the empty house. Her response to God's grace there. She's missed it with her daughter-in-law. God showing his grace to her. She can't see it. Naomi's bitterness has blinded her. She's consumed with bitterness. She suffered the loss of her husband. She suffered the loss of her sons. She suffered the loss of a certainty of a future. And now she just can't see past that. She can't lift her eyes beyond what's right in front of her. Now, on the worst reading of Naomi, the absolute worst reading of her, and lots of commentators have just gone bad on Naomi, right? Worst reading, Naomi is a hateful, angry woman. She's just mad at life. She's mad at the world. She exudes bitterness. That's the worst reading of Naomi. And I like what Lawson Younger says about that reading of her. Cut her some slack. She's been through a lot, guys. She's hurting. But... And I love this. Younger goes on to say this, though. Let's just say that worst reading is the right reading. Don't miss this, people of God. Let's just say that worst reading is the right reading. Younger says, what does that tell you about God? That woman who is a woman of weak faith... Immaturity, only seeing God's sovereign hand and judgment against her, unable to see his tender care, even in the fleshy arms of her daughter-in-law. To that woman, in that context, in that state, does a God of grace come. Struggles with bitterness do not make God immobile. They do not constrain God. They do not bind Him up. Her bitterness and her struggle, it can't. 
And though God's goodness to her, though God's redemptive purposes for her are not visible to her or to us even, even as the readers, we still don't see what God is doing. He's there. That's what He's showing us. He's there. This should be a great solace to you and I who struggle like Naomi does. Our Heavenly Father has bound Himself to us in His Son. People of God, He has bound Himself to us in His Son and He will not walk away. He can't. He's right in the middle of what you're going through every day. He's not on the outskirts. And I find so many folks who really do have this view right in the thick of things. God is not there on the outskirts. He's not kind of standing in the aisle somewhere out there waiting for you to get your act together. So that you guys can get on with business. He's right in the middle of it. Working in ways that may be imperceptible to you. How is your father clinging to you today? He clings to you in his son. And if you can point to nothing else, right now, where you sit, from your view, you know, out there in the cheap seats, if you can point to nothing else, if you can put your finger on no one else, Don't miss this this morning. Don't miss this right now. Your heavenly Father speaks to you. Don't miss this voice that comes right now from heaven to you. Who speaks to you in a story about an old Israelite widow. Who's telling you by his word, I'm with you. We leave here today and you go, well, I don't know. Is he really with me? Did you, are you listening to the words that are coming out of my mouth? He is with you. That's what he's saying to you right now. Don't miss that. This morning. Don't miss this table that he sets for you. People of God, you are about to be fed with the bread of his son. Don't miss that. Your heavenly father pulls up a chair with you at the table. Confirming for you his intimacy with you. Right? The action doesn't just happen when you go back and you you meditate on what's going on here. No, when Jeff says, hey, come on, let's eat. That's God saying, hey, I'm here. Eat with me. This moment... Those steps to the table, the taking of the bread, that taking of the wine, God is confirming for you right now. He is saying to you as a people of God, I'm here. I'm with you. I cannot fail. And don't don't miss each other. There are some of you here right now that you hear this and you say, I can't get it. You're too way down by your stuff. It's too dark. And you're saying, I can't, I can't get it. I can't get my hands around it. 
this, this stuff that you're saying. I hear the voice, but it's this distant little faint thing. And, I, and I, I got the bread in my mouth and I got the wine in my mouth, but I'm numb and it's lost its taste. You don't miss your brothers and sisters and brothers and sisters don't miss them. Because you people that just you can't get it, then here's what we'll say to you. We'll, we'll wrap our arms around you and we'll hold you up until you can. How about that? How about we walk with you and believe with you when you can't believe? Don't miss that. Don't miss these ways that your heavenly Father shows that He is not left, that He is not departed, no matter what it looks, it looks like. In these ways, He clings to you. So cling to Him. Cling to Him. Take comfort that though your struggle, honestly, your struggle, you see yourself cracking under the strain, take comfort in knowing that He has not forgotten, that He is here. Amen.